that came to Micah the Morasthite in days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, his name, Micah, the name Micah, means who is like Jehovah. Who is like Jehovah? And the word uh, has the same basis, really, as Michael the archangel. Uh, That uh, word means uh, who is like God. And there are many Micahs actually mentioned in the Bible, but this man is identified as a Morathite in verse 1. Uh, and he was an inhabitant of Morashagath. Uh, that's uh, found down in verse 14, and we'll mention that again in the message here tonight. But that was a place about 20 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem uh, near Lachish. And it's, uh, he is not to be confused with any other Micah of Scripture. The theme of Micah is very important for us to understand. Uh, Micah is usually thought of as a prophet of judgment. Uh, That seems to be true since the first three chapters are that of condemnation. So it's going to be somewhat negative to begin with here. The last four chapters are more consoling or comforting. Uh, One of the greatest questions in Scripture is found in chapter 7 and verse 18. In chapter 7, 18, there's there's the question, Who is like unto thee? Uh, It is unto God. And that's a theme that is emphasized throughout the book. Who is like unto God? Chapters 1 through 3, who is like unto God in proclaiming or witnessing? Uh, In chapters 4 and 5, who is like unto God in prophesying or consoling? In chapter 6, who is like unto God in pleading? Uh, Chapter 7, who is like unto God in pardoning? Uh, That's what makes Micah a wonderful little book. The main theme of the book is God's judgment and redemption. Uh, Both of those uh, themes are there. Now, in Micah chapter 7 and verse 18, I mentioned that already, but who is a God like unto thee who pardoneth iniquity and passes by transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Thank God for uh, his mercy. You see, God hates sin, uh, but he loves the souls of sinners, and he wants to save us. He wants to save sinners. Uh, Judgment is called God's strange work. Uh, It's strange because he does not like to judge, but since he's a holy God and he hates sin, he must deal with any rebellion. Uh, He couldn't do otherwise, but he still loves the soul of the sinner. He wants to save them, and he will save them if they come to him in faith. Now, notice one more thing before we get into the first chapter here. You'll find this book is divided really into three main messages, each beginning with this injunction here. In chapter 1, verse 2, hear all ye people. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, hear, I pray you, or, or as well in chapter 6, verse 1, hear ye now. I like to say, in other words, listen up. So that's a phrase I used to tell my ball players when they're all running around. I'd blow the whistle and I'd say, bring it in, listen up. 
and I'd give them some instruction. I'd give them some uh, motivation or something. But I wanted them to hear uh, what I was saying. And so God wants us to hear what he's saying. And that's one of the things that you'll find in these messages here. The first message addressed to all people. Uh, The second message is addressed specifically to the leaders of Israel. The third message is a personal word of pleading to Israel to repent and to return to God. So and as we begin talking about proclaiming judgment in the first three chapters, we'll find each chapter is also a message. So let's look at the first message of the prophet. The first message of the prophet, and this begins in verse 2 through verse 7. Notice, first of all, the recipients, the recipients of the message. Verse 2, hear ye, all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. He's saying, first of all, hear all ye people. That's what all means. All means all. So uh, we could certainly say that that includes you and me today. Micah has a message for us, and as with all prophets, although speaking into a particular situation which has long disappeared, the message is still relevant to us in our day because of certain principles that are laid down. Micah gives a philosophy of human government. Uh, He deals with that which is false and that which is true authority in government. Now, this would be a good book for the Republicans and the Democrats in Washington. You know what? Uh, It wouldn't hurt them to look at God's philosophy of government because in reality, their form of government just isn't working today. Uh, The reason it cannot work properly is because it was originally put together by men who, although some of them were not Christians, they had a respect and a reverence for the Bible. They felt that the great principles stated in the Bible were worth following. And therefore, uh, they wove into the fabric of our government these principles from God's word. And it will never work in the hands of godless men. That, and that's the real problem that we're facing today. We need people in the government today who have character instead of being characters. You know. Uh, The problem is that people are more concerned about charisma than they are about character. Micah will deal with this matter in the third chapter. But uh, here Micah puts his finger on the fact that they had false prophets, they had false religion, they had false leaders. So he says, hearken, O earth, and all that that therein is. And since most of us are on the earth tonight, must mean us too. Uh, hopefully you're not up, up in the air somewhere. But uh, he says, hearken, O earth. He also says, and let the Lord be witness against you. Mike is calling God as a witness to the thing which he's going to say. And then he says, the Lord from his holy temple. The Lord was in his holy temple. That is in heaven. And that's where he is right now, other than being in the hearts and lives of people by the indwelling spirit of God. So here's the recipients. Hearken, O earth, and all 
that therein is. Notice, secondly, the, re- the reason. In verse 3, the Lord will come down in judgment. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Now, if you remember, the high places is speaking of the locations of the idol worship. It's talking about idol worship. Idols were set up in the groves, up on the hills and the mountains, and also in that day the cities were set, situated in elevated places. Uh, some, uh, Both Samaria and Jerusalem were built on mountains. Uh, the Lord Jesus mentioned that a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And the city has tremendous influence upon the area around it. And when the city is the seat of the government, it has a tremendous influence upon not only the immediate area, but often upon the entire world. And that is the case of many great cities in the past as well as in the present. Now, cities are centers of great sin. And for these reasons, God is coming down upon them in judgment. Let's look here uh, further at verse 4. And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down in a steep place. Now, this is definitely a picture of some kind of volcanic action or even earthquakes. Uh, We find the same... uh, Uh, scriptures from Judges all the way through Habakkuk, uh, especially in Psalms, uh, Psalm 18, particularly verse 7, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills were moved and were shaken uh, because he was wroth, and there went up smoke out of the nostrils and fire out of his mouth. Devoured coals were kindled by it. Uh, He bowed uh, uh, the heavens also and and came down and darkness was under his feet and he rode upon the cherub and did fly yea he did fly upon the wings of the wind sounds very figurative but it's actual an exact picture of what took place uh, this might uh, raise the question about what or who controls the weather it's not mother nature it's god all right Who controls the natural forces? Well, God is the one who controls nature and the earthquakes and the volcanoes and the weather. Even insurance companies refer to them as acts of God, right? And I believe that God judges nations and he judges people. And these things, if not judgments, are at least warnings, Uh, When I read history and I read about the Great Depression of the 1930s and all the dust storms, and uh, I believe they were warnings from God. It just wasn't that Mother Nature was mad. No, God was in control. But you know what? America didn't listen to, to God in the 1930s. They got into World War II. And we still probably haven't completely recovered from that. But God is moving in the affairs of this world. I think of tornadoes. I, I lived in, uh, we lived in Tornado Alley for uh, some time, grew up there, saw tornadoes quite often. And some of you have had some experiences with tornadoes. How about the floods? Well, there's some areas of our country today that are just overwhelmed with water. 
and uh, many other natural disasters. And I believe these are warnings from God. We'd better take up and uh, or sit up and take notice. Then notice further reasons for judgment in verse 5. In verse 5, it says, For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? You see, he's speaking to both kingdoms here uh, and their capitals. Samaria was uh, of Israel and Jerusalem of Judah or Jacob. What is the transgression of Jacob, he asked. Or who is responsible for the transgression of Jacob? The answer is, is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? And so here the prophet places the blame on the capital cities. Whose fault is it? It's Washington, D.C., right? (laughs) The capital city. But here he's placing the the, uh, blame on the capital cities of Jerusalem and Samaria. Now, Jerusalem was the place where they were to worship God. Were they worshiping there? Well, yes. They would go to the temple. Uh, They would also go uh, to the high places where idolatry and some of the grossest forms of immorality took place. And God says that uh, that, uh, these things, he's going to judge these two great cities because of their tremendous influence over the nations of Israel and Judah. Now, I've already kind of hinted at application to our own nation. But you know what? The form of our government is not wrong. It's wrong people in leadership. Uh, A godless dictator is no different than godless congressmen. And you talk about the founding of our country. We've already mentioned that. We had a bad experience with a fellow by the name of King George. He could not be trusted. And so we formed a government which had three branches of government, or uh, uh, branches in our government, to check one another. And someone needs to check up on them. But the problem in Micah's day was that Samaria and Jerusalem had become corrupt. And God was going to judge them. Again, what about our own country? You know, we had a great opportunity to be a leader, even after World War II. So what did we give the world? Well, we gave them rock music, hippies, new morality, a love for pleasure, a love for affluence. And you and I may love our country, but we've seen a godless group of people take over it and spoil our nation, a nation founded under God. You know that in uh, some of the Democratic uh, committee meetings, when they swear in the witnesses, they leave off, so help me God. We're not going to do that anymore, the chairman said. We've done it all these years from the time of founding, but we're not going to do that anymore. They've taken God out of the, out of the swearing in uh, process. But it's a government under God that Micah is espousing, and that's God's philosophy of government. So we've seen the recipients of the message. We've seen the reasons for the judgment. Thirdly, the ruin of judgment. Verse 6 and 7. Therefore, I will make Samaria as a heap 
of the field and as plantings of a vineyard, and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof, and all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned from the fire or with fire, and all the idols thereof will I lay desolate, for she gathered it of the hire of the harlot, and they shall return to the hire of the harlot." Here is a uh, a miniature picture, if you please, of a great destruction that will come in the last days, and will return. Uh, we'll return to that subject when we get to chapter four. But here in the first chapter, it is a local judgment in which Assyria is going to destroy Samaria. He says, "I will make." Samaria as a heap of the field and the plantings of a vineyard. That's is that's what it is today. He says, I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley. I understand that there are all kinds of pillars and stones that formerly had been hewed out and used in buildings, and they've all rolled down into the valley. You see, God's word comes true. He says, I will discover the foundations thereof. And again, you can go there today, and this is what you'll see. You'll see all the ruins and the foundations of what once was a tremendous city, but but has long since gone out of business. And all the graven images thereof will be beaten to pieces. It's interesting that those who lived or have visited these places, I think even recently, have asked if there were any of these images still around. They're told no. Uh, There is no evidence of idolatry, uh, even though we know that there was worship of idols there. The high places, which are mentioned, were places where idols stood, and some of the basest kind of worship took place. For example, the worship of Moloch, the idol that formed a red-hot oven where children were actually offered. You say, that's terrible. Killing little children. What's any different today? Same thing is happening. How awful that is to think of killing a baby after it's been born. Just because it's not wanted. Some of the grossest forms of immorality were carried out in connection with idol worship. And we say, well, someone might say, well, that's not, abortion isn't idol worship. Oh, yes, it is. It's the worship of pride and selfishness. And I don't, I can't be bothered with a baby. Goes on to say, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with fire. The hires is a very interesting terminology here. It refers to the costly vessels that had been given to the heathen temples, and they were mostly like, most likely payments for harlots in this blasphemous worship. It says, And she gathered it of the hire of a harlot, and they shall return to the hire of a harlot. Sex was at the heart of this idolatrous rite. In Corinth, for instance, they know today what in the worship of Aphrodite upon Acropolis, uh, there was a thousand vestal virgins who were nothing in the world but just prostitutes. Sex was a part of religion, and man had to pay when he went into one of those places of worship. And whether in temples or out of doors, they were essentially brothels. 
It was all done in the name of religion. Remember what I said earlier today, if you were here in Sunday school? And I, saw, I guess it was last Sunday. You can, you can worship with all the intention you want. You can say, I'm intending to worship God, but if you don't do it the right way, it's false worship. It's not true worship. And they were doing this in the name of religion. This was true of the Phoenicians. It was true of the Philistines. It was uh, true of Israel when they adopted these religions. And so much is done in the name of religion and it has bound people into the slavery of sin. But Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a person. That's why it's important to realize when we have true worship, we're worshiping a person, not a place or a plan. You can have the most beautiful service with everything all planned out and everything just going just so, and you can say, wow, isn't that great worship? Well, if it's not worshiping God, then it's not true worship. The Lord Jesus made that clear when he said, If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. He can deliver people from things that are sinful. He can deliver people from the bondage of sin. And so this is Micah's first message. But if we look at the remainder of the chapter, we notice secondly the lamentation of the prophet. The lamentation of the prophet. Now Micah is deeply affected by Israel's sin and their consequences. You know, Micah is not a paid preacher here. Uh, He's a prophet called of God. He's very much like Jeremiah and Hosea. They had tender hearts, and, and Micah had a tender heart as well. We tend to think of all these Old Testament prophets as being just hard-nosed. You know, just uh, they're not going to give an inch. They're just kind of uh, tough like Elijah maybe or Ezekiel. Uh, when God commissioned Ezekiel, he warned him that he was sending him to an impotent and hard-hearted people. But he said, I'm going to make uh, uh, you heard harder your, uh, uh, your heart harder than theirs. There was a need for hard-headed prophets, and sometimes these men had to just speak right out. Many of God's prophets were very tender-hearted, though, and Micah is one of those tender-hearted prophets. And so we notice in verses 8 and 9, his announcement of grief. Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the dragons in the morning as the, uh, as the owls. For her wound is incurable, for it is come unto Judah. He is come into the gate of my people, even Jerusalem. There is no hint here of accusation or condemnation toward his people. He identifies with them emphatically, sympathetically, and there is an incredible intensity to this determination to lament because of what is happening in the north with the fall of the northern kingdom. But here in verse 9, he adds an additional reason for lament because it's his own country. His identification is with his own people. In other words, Samaria's illness was communicable. It was, could be spread. 
And it was terminal. Her sin sickness was already affecting Judah. And the cure for Judah is going to be just as radical as for Israel. It will be the cure of God's judgment. Micah weeps as he delivers this sermon, I believe. And we notice the language he chooses here. Lamenting and wailing and howling and uh, lamenting and mourning through tears. And in his weeping, Micah is not trying to manipulate his kind. He's not just putting on a show here. He's not just getting all emotional and trying to get people's emotions worked up. He is coming from a, a, an inner agony. Micah stands with godly messengers throughout Bible history uh, that people uh, who have expressed this kind of identification with sinners and the deep sorrow overcoming judgment. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses was willing to have his own name blotted out of God's book for the sake of the nation that he was leading. A sinful people. He was willing to say, take my name out of your book if you'll just reach down and save my people. Jesus himself in the Gospels, you remember, wept over the stubborn, unresponsive people of Jerusalem including those hypocritical Pharisees who rejected him. He weeps over them as much as if they were innocent victims. If you go back to Romans chapter 9, the apostle Paul, you find, is in anguish over the stubborn resistance of the Jews who refused to respond to Jesus as the Messiah. And then Paul echoes Moses. He says he is willing himself to be accursed, to be cut off from Jesus Christ, if his own people would just come in faith. These men were coming from an inner agony over the sin of their people. And they were willing to be cut off themselves if God would save their people. So you have here the announcement of grief. Secondly, you have the cities of grief. Uh, this you find in verses 10 through 15. Now, we are given here a series of names of 10 different urban centers that were affected by Samaria and Jerusalem. Remember, these were the capitals, and they had great influence on the areas around them. Now, not all of these places are on the map, but the list begins in the north with Samaria and moves south toward Jerusalem and beyond Jerusalem. And the meanings of the names here are given, and they kind of reveal a play on words. Uh, beginning in verse 10, Declare it not at Gath. Weep ye not at all in the house of Ephra. Roll thyself in the dust. Here we have Gath. You could call it Weep Town. That's kind of a play on word, but that's what the word Gath refers to. It's, it's the Philistines. God is saying, weep not at Weep Town. And then the second one there in verse 10, Ephra, uh, is what we could call Dust Town. That means to put dust on one's head. You know, when you put dust on your head like that, that was a sign of deep grief. Covered with dust. And we go on to verse 11. Pass ye away, thou inhabitants of Safer. 
having thy shame naked. Safer is beauty town. No more beautiful having the shame bare or out in the open. He goes on to talk about Zanan, came not forth in the morning of Beth Ezel. He shall receive you all his standing. You have Zanan, that's, we could call that March Town. March Town didn't march though. It speaks of the sheep migrating and moving from one place to another. And then verse 12, But the inhabitant of Maroth waited carefully for good, but evil came down from the Lord unto the gate of Jerusalem. Maroth, that word means bitterness. They were waiting for a good report, but a good report did not come. Rather, it was a bitter report. Evil came down from the Lord unto the gate of Jerusalem. And then we come to verse 13. O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is beginning the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Lachish, we could call horse town. Many horse stables were there. It was a place where idolatry had been introduced. And it says, bind the chariot to the swift beast. It's a reference here to the horse. A place where horses were kept. And they were used in the worship of the sun. You know, the Greeks had Apollo driving chariots across the sky in connection with worship of the sun. So Lachish is horse town. And then we come to verse 14. Therefore thou shalt give presents to Moresheth Gath, the house of Exib, shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. Moresh uh, Moresh hath Gath is called hometown because it was Micah's hometown. This is where Micah was from. And then Akseb, in that same verse, uh, Akseb is lie town. It lived up to its name. It had been given over to lies and deceitfulness. It speaks of a river that flows in the winter, but it dries up in the summer. We go on to verse uh, 15, yet will I bring an heir unto thee, O inhabitant of Marisha. Marisha, we would call high town. It speaks of a summit. It has a suggestion that there, there is help coming to Israel, but not at this time. They were ruled and possessed by Assyria. Uh, there is only a faint suggestion that the glory of Israel was in the line of David. And the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is the only one who fits the description of the glory of Israel. And then we come to verse 10, or, or number 10, the city. He shall come to Adullam, the glory of Israel. Adullam is called glory town. One of the names of the Lord is faithful. He is faithful and true, and he's coming to deliver them. He will not come from Lie Town. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, however, in Micah's day, Israel was being deceived, greatly deceived, and no help came to them when the Assyrian army came down from the north and overran their land. So you have these ten cities. And you kind of have the meaning of these names, and the, the, they're a play on words here. But notice here in verse 16, 
Make thee bald and pull thee for thy delicate children. Enlarge thy boldness as the eagle, for they are gone into captivity from thee. Micah is calling for the nation of Israel to mourn. This last verse of the chapter gets very, very personal here. It's all about relationships. All of these physical commands are expressions of extreme extreme grief and mourning. The individuals they care about more than anything else, they're innocent children. They're going to be taken away from them. And although the children did nothing to deserve it, the sin of the parents brings judgment upon the kids. Think of the sin of the parents bringing judgment on innocent little children today. Again, Micah is brokenhearted over God's judgment. (coughs) And his need to lament for his people, for their sin, for the wages of that sin, is an important model for us today. And we, however, do not know much about this, though. So many times we are very comfortable with what's going on. Lament is not a sign of weakness. It does not suggest relational compromise. It's not a denial of responsibility. It's not a softening of belief in God's justice. Because Micah still predicts the, the, the destruction. Moses and Jesus and Paul did not suddenly change their minds about the sinfulness of their audiences. They did not make or take a wishy-washy position that somehow God just loves everybody and he's going to overlook evil and everything's going to be okay. How much of that is going on today in in so-called churches that, oh, God is love and everything's going to work out? Not if we don't take care of our sin. Their kind of grief, their kind of lament is a personal expression of deep sorrow that God is ending His long-suffering patience. He's bringing judgment and death. And oh, how we need to humbly stand before God, perhaps kneel or even get on our faces before God and repent of our sin and pray for forgiveness of our sin and pray for our families and pray for our nation. We dare not proudly stick our noses in the air and think, well, judgment hasn't come yet. Nothing's happened to us yet. It's coming. God is warning us, and we need to confess sin before him and be right with him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for...